Well, once again, good morning. Welcome to Village. My name is Hannah. I'm glad you're here. Uh, this week in the Village Church office, we had a bit of a friendly debate about cats versus dogs. I'm not going to out anybody, but let's just say that there are dog people and there are cat people on staff. I happen to be in neither camp, so I'm truly neutral on this one. I don't have a dog in the fight. <laughs> Couldn't resist. But I will say that when it comes to theology, dogs are better. Maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't. Okay, Heather, you just outed yourself. But dog theology goes like this. Master, you feed me, you clean my poop, you rub my belly, you're always there for me. You must be the center of the universe. And cat theology goes like this. Master, you feed me, you clean my poop, you rub my belly, you are always there for me. I must be the center of the universe. Those of you who have pets can share your personal feedback with me about this after the service, but it is a nice picture for us of two different ways to respond to God. He provides for us so abundantly, both through the riches of creation, but also chiefly through the person of Jesus. We're gonna get to that more later. But all of it, all of God's care should lead us to respond to him in utter loyalty. Master, you must be the center of the universe. The Christian response to God's goodness is devotion to the one who loves us. But we know that so often we do the opposite, right? We turn God's gifts in on themselves as if they are the ultimate end of our relationship with him. We act like cats, reducing God to the dispensary of our wants and desires, the guy who cleans our litter box. The Israelites in today's Exodus reading kind of treat God this way. He has just delivered them from slavery, sent them out with the very riches of the Egyptians, literally their silver and gold and jewelry and clothes. He's parted the sea for them to escape, drowned their assailants, and made water for them to drink in the desert. And now, instead of expecting God to provide for their hunger, instead of realizing that he is good and capable and trustworthy, they grumble against him. They say, it would be better if we had died in Egypt, where at least we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. But you have brought us into the wilderness to kill us with hunger. They have completely missed the point of all that God had done so far. They'd seen the signs. They were beneficiaries of his miraculous work, but their hearts still had not turned toward him. They hadn't yet come to see him as the protagonist of their story. But of course, God does still provide food for them despite their grumbling. He says, tell the people of Israel that at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Though God's people internalize this, it doesn't matter how much bread or meat they get because the source of their hunger is much deeper than they realize. It doesn't matter how many more signs they see or provisions they receive. They'll continue to grumble until they realize that the signs point to him. They'll continue to be anxious until they realize that he is the true object of their devotion and their joy. The great Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann said, man is a hungry being, but he is hungry for God. Behind all the hunger of our life is God. 
All desire is ultimately a desire for him. This is the backdrop of today's gospel reading. Jesus says to the crowds who have just eaten their fill of bread that he provided, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. What was true for the Israelites in the desert is true for the hungry crowds who followed Jesus, and it's true for us. So we're going to reflect together on what it means to feast, not only on the material provision that God provides, but on the giver himself, Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. We pick up Jesus' words in John chapter six right in the middle of a very long discourse about food. He has just miraculously fed 5,000 men with five loaves of bread. And the way John tells that story is designed to make us remember the Exodus. We're supposed to see the allusion to Moses feeding the Israelites in a similar way. But then John gives us more than an allusion. He gives us a chapter-long conversation in which Jesus explains his miracle and answers questions about it. This is one of the unique things about John's gospel. Unlike the synoptics, there are no parables in the book of John. Instead, John follows Jesus' miracles with very long conversations, teachings that interpret the miracles and put them into theological perspective. So the first half of this book is actually structured around seven miracles or signs that Jesus performs, and then they're matched with seven statements that Jesus makes about himself. Seven I ams. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd, just to name a few. And even these statements are meant to remind us of the God of Exodus, the God who reveals himself to Moses as the great I am. The God who was then for the people of Israel is the same God made flesh in the person of Jesus. And John wants us to see that even Jesus' miracles reveal this God. His miraculous works tell us who he is. They're not just proof of his divinity. They're expressions of his nature. So when Jesus feeds the 5,000, he wants them to know this is about much more than some bread and some fish. He's helping us to understand what the miracle means for those who seek to follow him. And today's reading starts with people who were seeking Jesus. Verse 24 says, So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum, seeking him. But Jesus responds to them in verse 26, saying, You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you want me not because of who I am, but because of what you think I can give you. They misunderstood the meaning of the miracle. It was meant to be a sign of Jesus' identity, something that would help them to see and worship him as the one they had been waiting for, the new Moses who would lead God's people through an even greater exodus than the first. And to an extent they did see this because when Jesus feeds the multitude earlier in the chapter, they say, this is indeed the prophet who is coming into the world. But then Jesus withdraws from them because he perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. That's verse 15 of John 6. The crowds recognized his power and his position, but they wanted to own him. They wanted a puppet Messiah who would honor their agenda and make bread on demand. Now we don't have the same political context as the Jewish multitude that Jesus fed on the mountain 
But we do have to ask ourselves the same question. Do we want God or do we just want his stuff? Do we seek him because of what we think he can or will give us? So often we attach hidden strings to our faith, gladly following Jesus so long as the miracles keep coming. It's easy to confuse our love for God with our expectation that he's going to want. Hearts of the crowd, and he sees it in us. But instead of responding with condemnation, he offers a challenge. Verse 27, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus wants more for us than what we want for ourselves. He has more to give us than the food that perishes. And he's not squirrely about what that better food is. He makes it very clear in verse 33 and 35. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. It's me, Jesus says. I am the bread of life. The greatest gift God gives us is himself. Not the answers to our prayers, not the promise of material provision or relational harmony or a satisfying job or a spouse or kids or any other good gift that he might give us. Those things can come and go, but they can't be the basis of our faith. As Seth preached last week, even miracles, as wonderful as they are, they don't guarantee belief. God's blessings are great, but they're not God. And for that reason, they can never satisfy our deepest hunger. This is why we could have all the trappings. We can have a great family life or a great job or a nice fat bank account and still feel like it's not enough. It's why our garages are packed to the brim with stuff because we can't help keep accumulating things. Despite our great wealth, we're starving and we're searching for the thing that will satisfy. So we fill our bellies and our schedules and our minds. We gorge ourselves with information and activity and whatever else happens to be available to us in hopes that it will quench the profound spiritual hunger of our lives. But Jesus says, don't labor for the food that perishes. Feast on me and you'll never be hungry. To clarify, Jesus isn't asking us to reject material provision or to suppress our desire for good things. Feasting on Christ doesn't mean we should become super spiritual people who refuse to embrace the goodness of the created world. That's Gnosticism. That was condemned as heresy. Jesus didn't come to cut us off from the world. He came to redeem our relationship with it. In the gospel, God reorients and reorders our connection to perishable goods so that instead of becoming a distraction, these things become part of our communion with him. This is dog theology, remember? A dog loves his ball. He loves his dog food. And they only make him love his master more. This is what Jesus wanted for the crowd that he miraculously fed. He did provide materially for them. He filled their stomachs with good food. But he didn't want them to confuse the gift with the giver. The sign was always meant to point to him. This is why Jesus responds to their question in verse 28 by saying, the way you labor for the food that endures is simply to believe 
Believe in the one whom God has sent. I am the provision you are looking for, Jesus says. I am the sign. I am the proof of God's love for you and of his provision for your deepest and most ultimate need. The greatest gift God gives us is himself. Now, as Christians, we understand this as a once-for-all gift when we think about the cross. Jesus gave his life in our place and for our sin. He is the provision for our forgiveness and our right standing before God. But there is a perpetual aspect to this gift, which again, the imagery of the Exodus helps us to understand. In verse 31, they say, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. The Jewish people were definitively rescued from slavery at Passover when Moses got them out of Egypt, right? But then they were daily sustained and nourished in the wilderness on their long journey to the promised land. Every morning they woke up to mysterious bread that had covered the ground like dew. And as pilgrims of the new exodus, you and I, those whom Jesus has definitively rescued from slavery to sin and death, we are still on a journey, are we not? In many ways, the Christian life is a path through the wilderness. We're no longer slaves, but we aren't yet living in the fullness of our redemption with new bodies in a renewed earth. In other words, the Christian life is not easy, and that was never the promise. But God has provided sustenance for the season, daily bread from heaven in the form of his very life poured out again and again for us. So when we grumble and complain that this whole journey is harder than it should be, he says, take, eat. When we worry about the future or fear that we don't have the resources to continue in faithfulness, he says, this is my body given for you. We may not always get the answers that we want or have control of the outcomes, but we have him. And he is more than enough. He is enough to preserve us in the wilderness of grief or disillusionment or betrayal. He is enough to cover our greatest sins and heal our deepest shame. He is enough to sustain us in whatever calling we face, however impossible it may seem. Every day, in every season, he offers you nothing less than himself. If you are a Christian, I encourage you to think of Jesus' life not only as a once-for-all gift at the cross, though it is that. I encourage you to receive him again daily, to come to this table today hungry, not just for the memory of your redemption, but for its present bounty. I encourage you to respond to this gift by echoing those in verse 34 of our passage today who say, sir, give us this bread always. He will, and he does. Jesus offers himself to save us from our sin and to satisfy our deepest hunger. But this great gift is not only intended for us. And here's the last thought I'll leave you with today. Jesus is more than the fulfillment of your personal needs. He has come down to give life to the whole world. So we say, Lord, give us this bread always for ourselves, but also so that we have something to share with those who are hungry. He is the bread that is broken and blessed and multiplied so that whosoever will may come and be filled. 
I want to share with you a story from a modern missionary named Heidi Baker. You may or may not have heard of her, but for over 40 years now, she has served the poor in Mozambique, Africa, and she's had a special ministry among children. And in the early days of her life there, she and her husband inherited an orphanage that had lost all of its financial and government support, but still housed 80 children. And before long, those 80 children turned into 300 children. Their ministry was growing rapidly, but um, despite the fruit it was bearing, the growth was more than they were really able to plan for at that stage in their ministry. And this led Heidi to something of a breakdown. She was exhausted and burnt out, so she took a prayer retreat to seek the Lord and to rest. And on that retreat, the Lord spoke to her. She writes about this in her memoir. She says, One night I was groaning in intercession for the children of Mozambique. There were thousands coming toward me and I was crying, no, Lord, there are too many. And then I had a dramatic, clear vision of Jesus. I was with him and thousands of children surrounded us. I saw his shining face and his intense, burning eyes of love. I also saw his body. It was bruised and broken and his side was pierced. He said, look into my eyes. You give them something to eat. Then he took a piece of his broken body and handed it to me. It became bread in my hands and I began to give it to the children. It multiplied in my hands. Then again the Lord said, look into my eyes. You give them something to drink. He gave me a cup of blood and water which flowed from his side. I knew it was a cup of suffering and joy. I drank it and then began to give it to the children to drink. The cup did not go dry. By this point, I was crying uncontrollably. I was completely undone by his fiery eyes of love. I realized what it had cost him to provide such spiritual and physical food for us all. The Lord spoke to my heart and said, there will always be enough because I died. Friends, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven to give life to the world, and he is enough. Remember that when you come to the table today. He is enough to handle and to heal whatever you bring to him, whatever questions or deficits or needs or hunger. And he is enough to nourish and empower you for the work he has called you to outside of these doors, whether that's feeding 300 children or three whether it's caring for a sick family member or being faithful in a difficult relationship or just finding the strength to wake up again tomorrow. This is the dual meaning of our table fellowship every Sunday. We come hungry to receive for ourselves, but then we're sent out into the world on mission. The Catholic word for Sunday worship, as you might know, is mass, which is just a Latin derivative. It comes from their dismissal the Latin, ite, misa est, which means go. It is the dismissal. It's the sending. This meal, the culmination of our worship, is also the beginning of our ministry to the world. We receive the life of Jesus into our very selves, and then we are sent out. But we're sent out with his blood flowing through our veins with his life nourishing and sustaining us in the work that he has given us to do. We feast on Christ, and that food becomes our fuel for mission. 
we receive Eucharist, and then by the power of the Spirit, we become Eucharist. We become the presence of Jesus to the world around us. This is the invitation of the gospel, to feed on Christ and let him be formed in you for the life of the world. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you for giving us the most precious gift of your life and of yourself. And we pray that you would increase our hunger, help us to recognize it and to come to you to receive, trusting that you are enough and that you will be enough for today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.